0: Hi, my name is Yahav, and I was born and raised as an Israeli and as a Zionist. During the past few years, I've gone through the process of questioning the narrative I grew up with regarding this land we live in and the people living on it. This process led me to learn more and more until I reached a place of solidarity with the Palestinian people and their struggle for liberation. As I became more active, I became less afraid to voice my opinion. Over time, I've become more outspoken regarding my politics on social media and it reached people who were very surprised to hear my opinions. They asked if there were more people that share these opinions in my community, and were especially curious about what exactly happened that made me change my mind so drastically. Answering this question would take a long time, so I decided to create a podcast about it, where every episode is a one-on-one, heartfelt conversation with an activist who in one way or another supports the same cause as me. Each episode tells the story of a journey that one individual made, that led them to be the activists they are today. Each of these people have their own unique path that I believe anyone can learn from. Whether you're a Palestinian or a Jew living here or abroad or just anyone who feels strongly about the subject and wants to hear these voices. You're welcome to join me in this conversation and let me know what you think. My contact information is in the description of this episode and it would be great if this could be an interactive platform to approach, discuss and unfold more around these topics. I hope you learn as much as I did from these beautiful souls who I have the privilege to call my partners in building a better future for all people between the river and the sea. So for this episode, I want to introduce you to Murphy. She worked for Breaking the Silence for five years and is a student and youth educator for the Forum for Regional Thinking. She has a special talent at advocating for the Palestinian struggle and has been doing it on several different fronts with grace, respect and a sharp sense of justice. Disclaimer, anything and everything she said during the interview is her personal opinion and does not represent any organization she's worked for. Enjoy the episode. So, Murphy,
1: how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. Good to see you. First of all, let's start with one question. What is Murphy? What does that mean? That's not a name that I've
1: heard a lot here. (laughs) Um, Murphy is a nickname. My real name is Frima. Uh, Frima is a Yiddish name, which means uh, like a pious woman. I'm named after my great-grandmother. And uh, yeah, so Murphy, in Hebrew, the letters are interchangeable. So you grew up in a religious family, I I assume mm-hmm. because of the name. Yes. Um it's a it's very uncommon uh even in religious circles. I grew up in a religious family in Jerusalem. My parents are Canadian and I guess the household would be what you call modern orthodox and in Israel Zionutdatit so religious zionism. So these are people that believe
0: that the establishment of the Jewish state, is the sign that the Messiah has come.
1: Yeah, so that would be relevant to religious Zionism as a whole, as a movement. I specifically grew up in a more liberal family in that regard. There are very few, uh, but still uh, some religious Jews in Israel who identify as Zionists but do believe in peace and a two-state solution and uh, are not, I guess, part of the, the right-wing religious Uh, circles in israel so that's the family that you grew up in
0: yeah and your parents came here when they were adults
1: yeah they came as adults um just as they were starting off uh, their family Uh, so my oldest my oldest siblings were born in canada and they came here and then my parents became religious oh so they became religious after they came here yeah that was basically part of the the process and how old are you uh, almost twenty-eight.
0: So, tell me a little bit about the household that you grew up in, the environment, the upbringing, the education, all that.
1: So, I I grew up in in Jerusalem, as I said, and and I went to uh, religious schooling, elementary school and high school. So, like an all girls school, and we grew up in a neighborhood that was largely ultra orthodox, with a smaller community of modern orthodox Israeli Jews. Um, and actually, the neighborhood that we grew up in, Harnov, is built on the remains or the ruins or the lands of Deir Yassin, which was a Palestinian uh, village before '48, and it's very um, uh, infamously known for a massacre that took place there in 1948 uh, against, um, you know, the Palestinian villagers. Um, and it was very significant in the '48 war and in the Nakba because it basically caused a lot of right amongst palestinian communities and so it led to and this is also in the zionist narrative of things it led to a lot of villagers to flee from different places because they were afraid that the same would happen in their village Um, so it was actually quite a crucial point i mean not only because of the horrible massacre itself but also because of the things that it led to in the rest of the war and um, i mean i'm mentioning that because it was very significant for me to understand that which was when? I mean, I guess I heard the name Dilyasin come up when I was growing up. Maybe maybe the first time when I was like 12 or 14 or something. Where? At school? I think I came across it sort of like an online kind of map or like GPS program for like people, Israelis who want to hike in Israel. It's called um, uh, Amudanan, I think, or Keshe, something like that. And anyway, they had different information on different sites. And I think my brother showed it to me once. And then this like window popped up and, you know, said something about a Palestinian village. And then I can't remember how, but I joined a Zahrot tour uh, to Derezin. When you were 14? Or like 15, 16, somewhere around that time. Wow. Um, it was a very weird experience because it was like my neighborhood, but also just going on a tour with a bunch of left-wing activists and kind of uncovering these other places uh, right around where I lived. What did your parents think of of that, of going to a tour like that at the time? I don't think they knew. (laughs) I just kind of like, you know, walked out of the house and joined the group uh, 15 minutes later. And did that change something for you, hearing about what was there before the neighborhood that you live in? Yeah, definitely. It was it was a really important turning point for me. And then when I was uh, in high school, I uh, was studying arts and my like sort of final assignment, my final project in high school in, in the arts was a project kind of around scene and around issues that have to do with war and conflict. And so I photographed some olive groves that were right outside our house, which presumably were were planted uh, when the village was still there. And there's some other sites uh, around where we lived. There are still a few homes and and buildings from the time of the village. So it was definitely a a very kind of pivotal moment for me. And also getting to know the world of like the Israeli NGOs. So Israeli Jews who are talking about the Nakba, who are talking about the conflict, the occupation. How did your school,
0: your teachers and the kids that were around you,
1: react to this project so specifically that arts program was pretty elitist so you know those kinds of views were I guess appraised so I got like a hundred I think on that final project Mm -hmm. I actually think that artistically it wasn't so great but um yeah I mean so from pretty early on I was you know the leftist in every circle whether it was (laughs) high school or youth movements or other stuff that I did later on It was just a part of my identity. I mean, it it definitely created conflict and arguments and conversations. But, um,
0: like, what in at home, what was the uh, political kind of
1: view? I guess most of my family throughout those years, like my parents and my older siblings, who you know were already more politically aware, were somewhere kind of like center left, so liberal Zionists, which basically means that
0: you acknowledge that there's an occupation but that means the occupation started in 1967 and that the Nakba has nothing to do with the occupation.
1: I think there is definitely an acknowledgement that the Nakba is part of the story, but it's not the center of the political struggle or the political campaign. So the Nakba is a part of the past. It's something that um, that we may be ashamed of or that we have to apologize for, but it's in the past. So I think it's more an issue of like res- like how people view these issues with regards to their their responsibility or accountability. So the occupation is ongoing, and that's why it feels very urgent and immediate to people. And the Nakba is in the past, um, and it's not something that they directly took part in. And also, definitely, you know, I think many liberal Zionists buy into this claim that sort of says like you know what happens in wars is war. And displacement is part of war, and it's part of what happened in different places in the world, and you know during those years. And so, kind of like, we're very sorry about it, but let's move on. And for people who, you know, don't see themselves as Zionists or want to break open from that framework, are definitely Palestinians. The Nakba is a huge part of that, and military occupation is maybe just one form of the Israeli oppression. So this was the uh, discourse at home with your parents. I don't think I had such in-depth conversations about these issues specifically. I mean, I think that for people who are still within those kind of liberal Zionist frameworks, dealing with the or studying about it, or, you know, reading Benny Morris is kind of more of this, like, academic endeavor, and it's not so much an actual political statement or action, in, in the, like, in the present. So where were there clashes in regards to you being, you know, the leftist... I mean, in high school, I was, I guess, m- more of an outcast in that regard. Um, I didn't always bring, you know, my political views so staunchly into those spaces. I was doing a lot of that stuff on my own and kind of felt like I had this own separate world, like going to protests or, you know, educational tours. And I kind of had this like alternative path. And it definitely, I definitely grew apart from a lot of my circles because of that. Um, and I didn't know how to integrate that really into, you know, tell people like, listen, you know, I, I just came back from this tour of Hebron or East Jerusalem and we have to talk about this. I didn't necessarily know how to do that at a young age. And then after high school, I went to a pre-military academy, um, Mechina, which is most of these programs are very elitist, very patriotic, very Zionist and um, encourage It's sort of a year where people take time off to study and to volunteer and to do agricultural work. And, and it's very oriented towards kind of leadership roles within the army and afterwards within civil society. And I think there's a sort of facade of like pluralism and let's learn about all the different issues and listen to all sides. But uh, obviously the starting point is very patriotic and very Zionist. And then uh, in the military or making the, like the decision to go to the military was also a little bit conflicted because on the one hand, I felt that that, was, that would be my feminist act, is you know to go to the army, and I, I grew up in the religious community, so it wasn't something that I had to do by law. Because all the girls are exempt automatically. Right, if you grow up in a, in a religious background, if you go to religious schooling, you don't have to serve in the military. As a girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. as, as a female, and, and if you're – the religious men do serve – uh, other than ultra-Orthodox men, which is a different story. So uh, I really wanted to go to the army, and that's why I went to the Supreme Military Academy as well. But as that time got closer and my political views formulated more and more, it became more of a conflict for me. And at the end of the day, I did uh, join the military, I enlisted, and uh, I served in, in the occupied territories. And And part of that was kind of, I mean, that was led by this idea that you know, if already I'm doing this, if already I'm going to wear a uniform, then I might as well kind of go to the occupied territories, to the occupation, and kind of try to be the good soldier, which is... Like um, try to make it humane. Yeah, I mean, I think I was even, I was aware that, you know, even that notion was a little bit naive. So I didn't have any, I did sort of have this understanding that The occupation is bad, you know, from from, from the root of it. But I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, maybe it's good that there will be good people, you know, in those places. And throughout this whole time, were you still religious? No. So it was basically a process that happened uh, simultaneously that I was rebelling against society, the religious society that I grew up in and also Israeli society as a whole. So those things kind of came together but I, I stayed very, um, I guess, like spiritually connected throughout the years. And I went to different like Jewish study programs and it wasn't something that I completely disregarded. Because I feel
0: that in our kind of mainstream Zionist upbringing and especially in the religious upbringing, the connection between Judaism and Zionism is so strong that you feel that if you're not Zionist or if you go against the Zionist norm, then you're being a bad Jew. Mm-hmm. So how does that work in all of these
1: programs and all of these things that you did? I think it, it took time for me to kind of put this into words, but um you know, pretty soon on I think I found the Jewish humanist angles, um whether it was reading Yeshaya Lebovich and other Jewish scholars around issues of humanism and human rights and maybe today we'll we'll call it human rights but in the past kind of issues of of war and conflict and so so if, at some point it was pretty clear to me that there there shouldn't be a contradiction i'm not like an observant jew i i wouldn't claim that i'm not you know i don't keep kosher or keep shabbat and things like that anymore but when it comes to i think like the tenets of faith and and a lot of, I think, the, the sort of philosophical ground to what I perceive as Judaism, I think the real contradiction is nationalism, is Zionism and occupation. But obviously, it's very thwarted um, in Israel today. And yeah, you're definitely, if you're not a Zionist or if you're against the occupation, you're not only a bad Israeli, you're a bad Jew, uh, which I think is really ironic because I really think it's the other way around. Sometimes I do kind of wish that I had more of that in my life, um more of Judaism tradition yeah like more more practice mm-hmm. um but for me, it definitely has to do with the community, and I think a big part of you know why people are able to keep all those um those rules of Jewish law is because they have a community that they feel comfortable in that they feel represents their values and that supports that way of life and and i think that even in very liberal and progressive jewish circles in israel you know there will be discussion of occupation or of conflict or of human rights but it's never i never felt that it was really committed to the palestinian cause and and that to me always felt like a little bit of hypocrisy so it's very easy to sit in a beit midrash in a, in a jewish study center and talk about humanistic values but if you have never stood by Palestinians in the West Bank protesting for their rights. You know, I think there's a contradiction there. So I guess to get back to your question, I think for me, part of it was like understanding that there's not really a community that sees those issues as as coexisting.
0: I'm going to go back to your army service. Um, What
1: was your job? What did you do there? Um, So I was uh, a soldier in uh, the civil administration. It's basically the bureaucracy that manages the occupation, manages Palestinian daily life in in the occupied territories. And um, there's different things that this unit does. I mean, one of the main things that it controls is Palestinian movement. So soldiers... Many soldiers in the unit, their nine to five job is uh, approving or disapproving uh, Palestinian requests for permits to move from one place to the other, between the West Bank and Israel, between Gaza and Israel, uh, even just to leave from the West Bank to go abroad. Uh, all of those borders are controlled by Israel, including you know humanitarian cases of people who need medical treatment in Israel or someone who perhaps passed away in Jordan and their family. Uh, wants to bury them in the West Bank. So all that kind of thing of basically controlling uh, Palestinian movement. And my specific role was in the operations room in Nablus. So there are different districts and different representatives of the civil administration in, in these areas. And the operations room is kind of more like everyday issues that come up. So it could be clashes with settlers, attacks of settlers on Palestinians and their their sheep or their farmland and that sort of thing. And Palestinians could, at least in terms of the framework, they could file a complaint, so to speak, to the civil administration. And our job was to inform the army headquarters and get the police to go there and document. That doesn't mean that anyone will actually be arrested or that the, you know justice will be done, but that's how the system operates. And also coordinating between Palestinian security forces and the Israeli military so in order for the palestinian authority to function under under the boot of the israeli military it basically needs approval for everything that they do so like i don't know i ended up doing kind of bizarre things whether it was like coordinating electricity construction on you know main highways in in the west bank coordinating the movement or the transfer of palestinian High school examinations from one city to another, ensuring that the Palestinian prime minister is not arrested or stopped on the way from his house to uh, his office in Ramallah. All kinds of things that, from our perspective as soldiers in the civil administration, were like ensuring the rights of the Palestinians and making sure everything works diplomatically. Obviously, Palestinians have a very different experience of this. This is the body that is in charge of controlling their lives. But just to give maybe the listeners some insight, like for a lot of soldiers who are issuing these permits, their sense of it is they feel like they're on the wrong side. They feel, why is this my day job in the army? Like, why am I, you know, giving these rights, so to speak, to Palestinians? And there's a lot of like disregard and kind of like uh, looking down on soldiers in the civil administration. Like you're on the bad side. You know, like you're you mean, aiding the enemy. Kind oh, of like
0: from the rest of the army. Yeah. To the soldiers in the civil administration. Yeah. Like you're the lefties right, that are exactly. helping Palestinians. Which is, that's so ironic. Because Ex- the Palestinians would see the, the civil
1: administration as like the the occupation. Yeah, it's the, it is the occupation. But because Israel, you know, wants to maintain some sort of, you know, facade of diplomacy and of of you know ensuring human rights. Um, then it it does you know a few some things to to maintain. Again, this is the the army's perception of of what it's doing uh, to maintain uh, um, you know normal routine of life for Palestinians under occupation. So for other soldiers within the army who are let's say you know arresting Palestinian youth in the middle of the night it seems very bizarre that their fellow soldiers are granting palestinian permits to go to hospitals in israel but in terms of the international community it's the very very bare minimum that israel is required to do
0: i don't think it would even be the bare minimum i think it would be the um, logistics of this psychotic operation unfolding in the in the the details of it right like, exactly
1: yeah so one one thing that i you know, that I always, like, emphasize in this regard, like, if I'm speaking to Israelis about these issues, is that, like, there are over a hundred different types of permits, whether it's a work permit or a permit to go to a hospital in Israel or a permit to visit family in Israel or a permit for Christians in Gaza to visit Jerusalem when the Pope is visiting. All these detailed intricacies of, of various types of permits, and a lot of Israelis view that as oh, look how generous we are, right? Because we're giving the Palestinians the right or the ability to do all these things. But obviously the irony is, 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 as you said, it's just an example or it's just um, a display of how detailed and how deep this control is. It's kind of like the irony of the checkpoints.
0: In Hebrew, you can either call them machsomim, machsom, mm-hmm. which obviously any, every Palestinian knows this word in Hebrew, which means, it means a blockade, mm-hmm. literally. And then the army, they call it ma'avar, which mm-hmm. means a passage. So the army sees these checkpoints as, well, we built a wall and we're so generous that instead of just having this wall all closed, we're putting several passages, you know, mm-hmm. every few kilometers so that people can go in and out. Right. By the way, mostly settlers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... um the the view of it as a passage instead of viewing it as a blockade, which is what it really is, because it shouldn't have been there in the first place, is just so crazy. It's like, why are we calling these passages? They're not passages. They're blocking people's ways. They're not opening ways
1: for them. Like, yeah, it's um. There's there's a lot of mindfuck in in. Specifically in the civil administration's propaganda it's it's really uh hard stuff to to watch and to listen to.
0: And did you see this while you were serving or are these things that you came to these conclusions much later on?
1: Yeah, I, I w- was definitely aware of the stuff you know while I was there, which made it a really excruciating process or experience, um, especially because you chose it you could have you could have been exempt. Right. Um, and so I, I knew I wasn't going to change anything deep within the system. But I sort of thought that, I mean, there were moments where I thought to myself, OK, like I am doing my best and maybe it's a little bit better than if someone else was on the shift.
0: Like you care um, a little more. So maybe this person got the permit instead of not getting it. Yeah. Just because this or person. like maybe
1: this person got a faster response that said that their permit is denied. But obviously it's not anything significant you know and it's not it's not something that's gonna rewind uh, 50 plus years of occupation and it's you know uh, there were moments where palestinians they could call the phones in the operations room um so it's kind of like a civilian hotline again this is the the soldier's perception of, of this whole apparatus and oftentimes palestinians who i spoke to were like very grateful you know that i didn't hang up on them or that i gave them you know, just a very simple answer to a question that they had. But that made it all the more, uh, I think, painful because it just felt very uncomfortable Like the default is much worse. Yeah, and also just being in that position where Palestinians are, are thanking me for, you know, being decent and not being really horrible. And just how much, you know, how much dependency that creates, right? You need to just hope for the, the the grace of the occupier to give you a simple answer as to how to go about, how to get a work permit, how to visit your family, how to do all these basic human things that, you know... They shouldn't even be asking
0: you to do. Right. At the end of the day. Well, wow, that does sound excruciating.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously the, the victim in this story, but um, it it was very, very, very unpleasant to be in that situation. And, you know, also... I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to I didn't want to get punished for doing something against the rules. So, most of the time I was doing things that I was really staunchly against. Do you regret this? Um I don't know. I think like the politically correct answer would be to say that I regret it, but I I I think the human experience is like a little bit more complex than that, and I don't I personally don't relate so much to this concept of regret in general. I don't know. People might hear that and think like, oh my God, <laughs> even, even more so fucked up. Like, why don't <laughs> you regret it? Um, like if I wasn't there, someone else would be there. And again, just like the, uh, whole
0: Yakov, the settler. Remember uh. that video <laughs> that went viral? If, if
1: I don't take your house, someone else, someone will. else. Will.
0: the thing is that what's amazing about what he said is that it's so true. Right. Like he's, he might be perceived as like the villain that's, uh, you know, a deceitful, liar, horrible prison. But the truth is, it's not about him. It's about the system. Because if he's not there, there will be someone else instead of him. And that's actually what they do. And, and that specific, I mean, generally in the Zionist project and the military and also the settler project, the people in Sheikh Jarrah are not. Families, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the Jewish settlers are not families, they're young,
1: like, yeah, just single people, just
0: single people that are kind of doing their shifts there, mm-hmm. sitting in that house, so that the Palestinians that actually own it don't come back to reclaim it. And it's like that's basically the essence of the occupation is that. You can just use civilians as pawns and it's not really a matter of decision. I mean, obviously, if nobody here, if none of the Jewish Israelis took part in this and willing to be cooperative with it, then the whole story in Sheikh Jarrah wouldn't have happened you know, initially. But once it starts happening, it really isn't about the individuals. Yeah.
1: I it's mean, like, I think there is like there is a fair claim to say that, you know, first of all, each and every one of us has their moral responsibility or their ethical accountability. And so I do think that I, I know that I was part of the occupation and I was part of, I was an active part of many people suffering. But I think, yeah, it just sort of more of like a philosophical uh, position that I have about regret and about individual actions. And I think that, Perhaps without that, you know, I wouldn't be able to be an advocate for the things that I am today. Because um, you've seen it from up close and you know all the
0: details of, you know, how how much this occupation is ridiculous. That's what you're saying? Um, or?
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, for, for many years, that's like what I did is is try and use my experience and the things that I saw to try and shift the minds of Israelis, Jewish Israelis. Um against the occupation so it's not that like I'm saying oh good I went to the army and I was part of the occupation uh, so that I could later speak out about it but you know given that that was the situation and the choices that I made at 17 18 I think that you know it's the least that you know could have come out of this so you did two years of army service
0: that you finished, what kind of feeling? What were, you, what were your feelings when you
1: got out? Um, I was very angry. I mean, maybe this just has to do with being a young person. <laughs> <laughs> Who um, were you angry at? I don't know. I think I was angry at, you know, I directed the anger that I had in my mind towards the people around me. So a lot of the people that I, you know, was encountered throughout my military time. Yeah, I think instead of, you know, instead of uh, kind of being angry at myself, I was thinking, I had a lot of moments where I was like, I can't believe they did that or what a horrible thing to do. But at the same time, I was also there and I was also part of it. Um, Just sort of like a general anger. It wasn't a specific anger like, oh, my teachers didn't tell me or something like that. And what did you do next? Shortly after, I mean, I had a few months in between that I traveled and worked a little bit. But then I joined Breaking the Silence, which maybe some of the listeners have heard of. It's an organization of veteran soldiers who've served in the occupied territories and to speak out against the military occupation by sharing testimonies of specific practices and specific you know, incidents that they took part in. And so there's a ton of educational work that this organization does, and, and that's what I did for uh, almost five years Um did educational work with many Israelis, but mostly with Jews in the diaspora and international crowds, guiding tours to the West Bank and showing people the reality of the occupation and giving talks and lectures about what this military occupation looks like. And I think it's a, it's a really important angle for especially Jews in the diaspora and, and Israeli Jews who kind of need that validation of someone from within, someone who's like them to tell them, Listen, it's it's actually as bad as people are saying and we need you to I need you to believe me that this is what's actually happening and that it's possible, I think, to not your identity or or kind of your your faith doesn't have to be completely shattered. You can learn about this and be active on the issue and you don't have to completely like ignore it or deny it. Or you don't have to give up your identity either. Yeah. Like you can still
0: be Jewish, you can still be a believer, you can still be traditional, you can still be whatever you
1: want and resist these things. Yeah. Um, I think the pressure is uh, even stronger uh, for Jews in the diaspora in many ways because they don't have that validation or that legitimacy of being Israeli. Definitely. So if you give up on your Zionism then the question is even bigger like the the hole or the gap is even bigger because in some in some circles at least because Judaism kind of conformist Judaism in the US is so intertwined with zionism yeah um israel education and every at every synagogue every preschool
0: for many people it's also the main part of their jewish identity so if they gave that up mm-hmm. what's left right
1: exactly they, that's a struggle that people have Right, and Israel is the place where they connect to their Judaism. They come here, they go to the Western Wall, they study Jewish texts, they, you know, they're immersed in Jewish life here. So, it's 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 a hard one, uh, but I but I think that as an Israeli, I feel that that is that is my main responsibility is to speak to people of my kind.
0: And when did you kind of go from being leftist and anti-occupation to Distancing yourself from Zionism as an ideology, because that's something that's a shift that maybe not everybody knows is maybe one of the more radical shifts someone could make as a Jewish Israeli, because there's a lot of Jewish Israelis that call themselves leftists. But at the end of the day, they still believe that Zionism is their, like ideologically is their home. Mm -hmm. You can't move them from there. Like they're not going to they're not going to budge because it's too scary.
1: Um yeah, I I totally agree. I think it's really one of the hardest things ever to to do as an Israeli. And I don't know that I've that I'm necessarily at the end of the process. Um I feel like it's a really really long process. Like if becoming aware of human rights violations in the West Bank, you know, can take you just a day if someone gives you the right information, and, you know, shows you around and you meet Palestinians and you hear their experience challenging the, the Zionist kind of not so much even just the, the 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 factual kind of history of it, but like the place that it takes up in your identity and in your psyche, I think is really, really radical. And, and it, I mean, I, I first of all think that it has to do with like really willing to be nonconformist not just because it's like a cool thing to say, but it really means dis- distancing yourself from this kind of automatic loyalty to this idea of a national collective or whatever. And I think it was somehow always there. Like today, I think after like a decade of let's say political involvement, I look back at like Delia scene in that moment where I realized that the place that I live in that there used to be Palestinians there. And I think more than the massacre itself, it was the fact that there was life here. There was this community and that they had rituals and culture and religion and language and community and all these things. And it has to do with a lot of things. It also has to do with realizing that the two-state solution is a continuation of that framework. It's, it's a framework based on separation. It's a, it's a framework based on... On supremacy as well. Supremacy and unequal division uh, of the land that today, I mean, Jews are a slight majority in. But when the idea of partition initially came up, Jews were a minority in Palestine. And so I feel like disengaging from that idea, and for a lot of people, it was a matter of, is the two-state solution viable and then when it was no longer viable you had this opportunity like you know spatially viable because of the settlements etc then there was an opportunity to even think of the framework itself and 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 where this idea of of partition and separation came from and and also i i i don't know i i give a lot of credit to to palestinian scholars and palestinian activists whom I, i encountered who just have a completely different language about this place and when you don't want to be separate from palestinians and you're thinking of ways to live in this land to share this land and to share life in general then you just you're just not attracted to these ideas of of supremacy anymore it's like this kind of i don't know it, it kind of feels like a like a snake taking off its skin in the sense that like Zionism is is a whole set of of kind of like discourse, you know, and 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 an approach to human life. And at some points in, in I think in my like journey, it was more simple. It was just like, okay, like I don't believe in nation states, right? And then so why should Jews have a nation state? And how should Jews still be safe in this world? And what kind of communities do I want from my Jewish community? But it also has to do with kind of more of like a historical historical inquiry of, of what this project was and the way that it treated really anyone who wasn't in Ashkenazi Zionist from Eastern Europe. The, you know, the race, the internal racism within the Israeli Zionist system towards Mizrahi Jews and Jews from, from I would say the East or from Arab speaking countries, but really anywhere, anything. Or from that, Africa or from, you know, anywhere that's. Yeah, like, anywhere that's not that Ashkenazi hegemony. Um and so then you'll start to understand that this thing is not so great. And and I also, it's important for me to say that it, it can be separate from the idea of a homeland for the Jewish people.
0: That was just what I was going to ask you. Because there's two main reasons why a Jew would feel that they should be here. One is safety, and the other is a historical connection or a spiritual connection to this land specifically, mm-hmm. which is why the idea of a nation state for the Jewish people could not happen in any other place in mm-hmm. the world. But how do you feel about that, like the idea of the connection, the historical connection to this
1: land? I, I feel very connected to it. I mean, I, I assume that if I wasn't born here, it would have felt different. And, and I acknowledge that. And I think that's also an important piece, especially if we look at like other conflict slash other occupations around the world i mean i think there is an important piece that needs to be figured out which is the occupiers or the settlers connection to the land like i think it's just it oftentimes feels like a little it just conflictual like it's it's it sort of feels like oh it's not the right time right like we should be first liberating from from liberating whatever yeah and then you know ask ourselves questions of, of identity and what kind of society we want to form here but i think that i think we have to answer those questions as soon as possible because that's what's that's what keeps jews away from being able to imagine a one state situation right because they fear that there won't be they won't have a place that they won't be able to live out their connection to this land and there is a connection i think this is not you know Boers in south africa like You know, Jews have a very deeply rooted historical and religious and spiritual connection to this place. And I think it's important to cultivate that, like to intentionally separate that from ideas of supremacy um, and to cultivate that as an alternative to Zionism. I so much agree with
0: that. I really feel like we have been indoctrinated to think that a connection to this land equals the exclusive sovereignty on it and mm-hmm. military oppression. And it doesn't have to be like that. Like the sovereignty can be shared. Mm-hmm. And there's so many alternatives to to this situation that has been created, but people can't, they kind of can't afford to see the the alternatives because of the fear.
1: Right. I feel like it's that, that's the only
0: thing that's preventing them from seeing it
1: and Zionist indoctrination that among other things intentionally distance people from their traditions and from their from their Jewish customs and their Jewish various Jewish dialects so if you're not i mean you probably get this experience a lot like a lot of the people that we know i know that you grew up in you know somewhat of a like traditional or conservative upbringing uh, perhaps not orthodox but yeah. a lot of the people that we know that grew up in secular households and communities they have zero connection to their Jewish identity, but that's the reason that they justify their existence here. So there's this weird situation where they're Zionists because they're Jewish, but they don't actually, excuse my language, give a fuck about Judaism, which is fine, which is people's, you know, it's definitely their right. And, but I think that it's also important to acknowledge that this was an intentional act of essentially a secular project. And then people are really, they do really feel that they have an identity crisis if they let go of Zionism, because there's nothing to fill that void. Yeah. One thing that came up when we were talking about this idea of sharing, like sharing land and how we view the land and, you know, spirituality versus atheism, I think is this this idea, um, there's a, a religious practice that, you know, if you have a book and you, you don't want it to get lost or so you write your number and your name in it. and um, a lot of religious people will write on their belongings. Uh, they'll write their name and their number, but they'll also add uh, a quote which I believe is from Bible, from Psalms, which says Loa," which means "To God is the land and the earth in its fullness." And I think that in order to 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 connect to this project, of you know conquering and occupation and dominance then you have to be without a god because because nothing belongs to us and i think that's why it's such a it's such a secular idea because it's it's reclaiming the idea of governance it's reclaiming the idea of of power of control and although i don't agree you know for for many reasons fully with the ultra orthodox a philosophy about this, but there's a certain softness that the ultra-orthodox Zionists have maintained, which is this kind of like anti-militaristic and anti-power approach. It's more a, like if we pray enough, then we will be sovereign <laughs> um, on this land. But but God is sovereign, and God will <laughs> decide, and and, and they and yes, and in, and in the future, there will be some sort of like, you know, Messiah and Jewish kingdom, etc. <laughs> but we're but, not going to be able to control it. Right, but, like, but but in practice, that Messiah is not going to come, and they're willing to live the rest of their lives, generations upon generations, without seeking that dominance. And and it becomes a philosophy, it becomes a way of life to say, I don't own this place, I don't own this land, I don't own anything, so how could I claim to, to control other people, right?
0: Yeah, or control other people's land. Yeah. It's uh, So what you're saying is this practice with these books is like, uh, how can I even say that I own this book? This book owns, is owned by God as well. That's basically yeah. the that practice.
1: I just yeah. wanted to <laughs> yeah, 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 that. It's just an example, but, but I think it's a very beautiful quote and, it, and it's something nice to practice. I think our biggest fear is like that if we do that, then we'll be distanced from the community. But I don't feel that. I feel that the more I'm kind of confident in like, what is justice in my eyes here? I think it it's easier for me to say these things and to identify as like non-Zionist or anti-Zionist or whatever it is. And like still feel like you belong here. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of feels like a very simple truth. And the more, you know, as time goes by, I don't know. I can say I can point to a specific moment. And I also just want to say that there's activists who are doing like so much more work than I am and who are like on the ground every day all the time. And I just feel the need to say that because, you know, activist guilt, I haven't been doing so much of that lately, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I I guess it just kind of like, if what motivates you is justice, this is a just cause every national or like, Liberation movement has its faults and has its issues. But I I just sort of feel like being an ally to that is makes most sense. A lot of Jewish Israelis and Jews at large,
0: actually, are very afraid of a one-state solution or anything like that, anything that gives equal rights to everyone who lives here mm-hmm. because they feel like once... Palestinians are given the opportunity or once they're not, once they're a majority um, or once they have some kind of equal control of this place as much as we Jews do, then they will either get revenge or we'll just gradually go back to being the Jewish minority oppressed like Mm -hmm. we've always been throughout history. What do you think about this innate fear that I feel like it sits in every single heart of every Israeli no matter Mm. how leftist yeah
1: Um, I guess there's like two pieces to that Um, I guess my question is do you trust Palestinians (laughs) I trust the Palestinians I know I don't trust Palestinians because they're Palestinians I trust people if I know them you know um I, I believe, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit like a little bit, um, I don't know, poster like, but I believe in democracy and I believe in equal rights and I believe in justice. I believe in all those things and that's what I want to see. And if I were living in any other country that was not living up to those values, um, then I would presumably fight for those values. And so perhaps this is, you know, what other people might think is naive, but that's what I'll continue fighting for in whatever constellation I'm living in. And I think the fear is also, you know, is wrapped up in in this idea of, it has to do with the the religious Islamic ideology or approach to to this place and to Palestine. Um, And I think it's a legitimate fear and like i think it's a valid fear and it's also a fear that a lot of secular palestinians have Hmm. about you know the future (laughs) of the society and and the governance um but i just don't see dominance as as an answer to that like you know if it's jewish dominance or palestinian dominance over jews um i i just yeah that's not what i want to see so Whatever the situation may be, um, does that make sense? As in, I want to strive for, I'm striving for and hopefully fighting for a just society. Whether you're the majority or the minority. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's easier to do that as a majority. I don't know. Um, And maybe that's the fear of many Jews, is that they will become a minority. But I think that's inevitable anyway. I mean... You can't fight the demographics. Like we Jews are going to be outnumbered by Palestinians, um, at some point, uh, or at least Zionist Jews in this land. And so, um, I think you know that it's. I I tr- I trust humanity, and I believe in like maybe it's kind of like old school democracy. But I believe that if people have a good life, and they have good education, and they have good healthcare, and they have you know all their freedoms are protected I, I I think that it usually tends to create you know respect and and dignity and and like good things
0: see where i where I disagree with that is that I know a lot of Israelis that have all of that mm. but they still support an apartheid regime. I mean yeah, but
1: they don't have that
0: because because of the trauma of being
1: persecuted as Jewish people. The saying goes you know. None of us are free until all of us are free. And I, I really think that, like, it may just sound like a slogan, but I really think that Israelis are not free be- because they're not, because they live in a society that, that is not free for half of the people who live under, uh, under its regime. So we may feel like we have, we do enjoy Jewish democracy for Jews, but it's not a democracy. Um, even for some Jews, it's not. Even for by some the way. Jews and for Palestinians under the living under the Israeli government, under the Israeli government system uh, directly, and those who are living under its occupation. So, so, yeah, I mean, maybe this sounds like we haven't tried real capitalism, or we haven't tried real communism, but I really think that we haven't tried real democracy and real equality. And I think, you know, that goes both ways. I, I believe that it changes people's perception of, you know, their need to control. I don't know, I, I, I just believe that that true justice will bring a sense of security to everyone here is there anything you'd like to
0: add that i haven't asked you about any message to the nations or to your nation <laughs> well <specifically>? who's listening <laughs> i hope uh, as many people as possible but um we'll see about that later
1: <laughs> um what's my message uh take care of yourselves <laughs> Um, yeah, no, like life, life is hard. Being in, in political activism is really hard and community is important and family is important. And I guess maybe just to sum up some of the things that we spoke about, um, I don't feel, it's not even that I don't feel a contradiction. I actually feel closer to my Jewish identity. Um, the more I become involved in, you know, various Palestinian struggles, And I really encourage people to feel safe enough in that, you know, in that space. And also I think that because mainstream Jewish community didn't address these issues and and I felt like I had to kind of, I felt like I had to flee these, these um, kind of more traditional um, spaces. Now that I chose my political community, I can like live up to my spiritual identity as well in Israel. And I think unfortunately in the diaspora as well, in many places, if you're part of the Jewish community, as we said, then you're also Zionist and you, you're also, you know, you can't be too critical of what the Israeli state does. Um, And once you release yourself of that, I feel like I can really re embrace Judaism in a way that feels very healthy and like clean and pure in a way that it should. I connect to that very much.
0: Anyone who wants to follow Murphy or Freema
1: you um, can do so on Twitter. I'm v- okay. I'll just say disclaimer that I've been really low on social media lately. No, but you're you've got an amazing Twitter. I like so your I guess account. I, maybe it's yeah. It'll be a lot of like retroactively but, <laughs> but maybe in the future I'll get back to it.
0: So if you want to hear a little bit more about what Murphy thinks, Uh, follow her on Murphy underscore B, which is her handle on Twitter. Anything else you want to recommend? Um, Mm. Just something to look up, someone to follow that you think would be very influential on listeners? So
1: I guess I can just recommend, I, I don't know who the listeners are, but if they're also Israeli or Jewish and seeking resources to understand the Palestinian, uh, narrative. And I would also say kind of more academic and theoretical frameworks for some of the envisioning that we spoke about. Um, I really learned a lot from Al Shabaka, um, the Palestinian policy network. Uh, so thank you to them for, um, influencing, uh, my positions and, um, uh I guess those who are not Israeli and not Jewish, um I I think that um the Israeli obviously the Israeli human rights organizations and NGOs are doing very important work. So I can just always recommend to to check out their work also if you just want to be involved in things that are happening like who on the ground, like breaking the silence, like B'Tselem um Gisha, Yeshdin Um there's also Zuchot, which you mentioned mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, yeah, and I think Zahot is maybe um, the most interesting of them all in um, in their envisioning of a future and not only focusing on the, you know, here and now. Um, and so Zahot took an interesting turn from being um, a kind of research and data and historical documentation uh, of the Nakba to being um, recently or in the past few years there has been a circle of of Jewish Israelis formed, um uh Jewish Israelis who commit to the idea of um Palestinian return and to decolonizing um the space and and I think that's a really interesting um vision for the future.
0: Yeah, me too. And I, I like that Zuchot are very connected to the transitional justice kind mm-hmm. of um theory and I think that that's the ultimate solution to what's going on here is transitional justice because Mm -hmm. transitional justice it not only brings justice to the oppressed but it also creates a framework where the oppressor can go through a process Mm -hmm. of transitioning in a safe space Mm -hmm. to become a partner instead of an oppressor and I think Mm -hmm. that you know, if that process doesn't happen then we just end up with, you know, South Africa that's might not be in apartheid on paper right now, mm-hmm. but still has like heavy, heavy issues to deal with. Like I feel Yeah. There's a lot of work to do to to really bring a joint a really joint future, like without violence and without mm-hmm. oppression, without supremacy. so um thank you so much for coming and speaking to me murphy thank you so much for hosting this was
1: uh it was really nice i haven't spoken about these issues in quite a while um and it was really nice like i felt with you like reconnected to how strongly i feel about these issues
0: yes i'm very happy to hear that and uh i hope me and you keep uh Rocking in the free world together and uh, creating justice and peace uh, from the river to the sea. From the
1: river to the sea. Amen. Yeah.
0: Yalla bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you so much, Murphy, for joining and sharing. Thank you, Oy Geva, for the beautiful music that he composed for this podcast. And thank you for listening.